Amen. I'm so thankful to worship this morning, and I'm so thankful for the start of a brand new series. And we are excited to begin this series, The Church Is. The Church Is. And I pray it be an encouragement to you and a blessing to you in your walk with Christ as we discover the calling of the church, what the church is supposed to be in this world, things that are supposed to describe or identify the church of Christ the body of Christ, and yet the things that sometimes are identifiable to us are not what we're supposed to be known as, what we're not supposed to be. And so I'm so thankful for the series. Um, I pray that you will commit, as I try to say at the beginning of every series, that you will commit to be here for every week of this six-week series, that you will decide today to make it a priority and an emphasis to be here consistently so that you might be able to take part in what God desires to do through the series. And so I pray that you're able to be with us for the coming six weeks. And I'm, again, so excited for this morning and for what we're going to be looking into. When we hear the statement, the church is, many things come to mind. When you hear that statement, the church is, or the beginning of that statement, the church is, you in your mind will automatically begin to put something on the end of that. You, if I just said the church is and asked you to respond audibly, you would, we would hear lots of different terms, lots of different words to describe the church. What the church meant, the church is this or that. The church is, and we'll throw on the end of that a negative sounding description. Some of us, the church is, and we have a positive background or a positive mindset of church, so we're going to add in a positive ending. I'll give you an example. For some... If you ask them, the church is, and how would you finish that statement? If you just said the church is and you finish it, some people would say the church is fake. Some people say the church is fake. That I go to church and the people are just fake. They act one way on Sunday morning, but they're not real. They're not genuine. Everyone struggles. Everyone has struggles. And yet I go to church and I feel like I'm the only one that has a struggle because we're taught in church, just put it on and pretend like everything's fine. Some of you grew up in churches like that where maybe you had some struggles and some battles with sin and some things like that, and the last place you ever felt comfortable enough to say that was at church. Because you knew what would happen. If somebody found out about you having a struggle or a sin issue or something like that, oh man, you're marked, you're classified, you're done. We don't talk to them, we don't hang around them because they, well, they struggle in sin. We all struggle in sin, it's just their sin was made known. Now, does that mean we condone sinful behavior and overlook sinful things and we don't address things? Of course not. Of course we deal with those things and we address those things and we call people to repentance and we call people to restoration and we have consequences for sinful decisions, of course. But nowhere in Scripture is the church called to be fake. We're all called to be real and genuine before the Lord and before one another that we might experience healing and restoration For some, if they said the church is, they would say, well, the church is hypocritical. The church is hypocritical. It's just, again, a bunch of people saying one thing but doing another. It's a bunch of people that want to tell you that your sin is this horrible thing. They've got their own sin things, but they don't talk about that because that might mean they have to change. For some, the church is boring. I'm not going to ask you to say amen. Raise your hands. For some of you say the church is boring. That's what the church is. My experience as a kid, growing up in church, as a teenager, even as an adult, church is boring. Some people, if you were just asked them walking on the street, the church is greedy. The church is after your money. The church just wants more of your money because the church is greedy. Some would say the church is arrogant. The church is arrogant, cocky. 
by the way, there's some truth in that. We stopped remembering a long time ago for some of us in church and church in America as Christians that we're all saved by grace, that you didn't save yourself. You didn't do nothing to contribute to your salvation except the sin that was needed to be forgiven. So how as Christians can we walk around arrogant, looking down on those, again, who just sin differently than us? Those that don't even know Christ, that need to know the message of the gospel, but we're too busy critiquing and judging and looking down and condemning that we've not stopped to even build a relationship to show them the love of Christ. One that, uh, and just in talking to some people this week, there's a couple pastor friends of mine that I just sent them a text and I said, hey, if you had to finish this statement, what would you say the church is? Now they're pastors or they've been around the church for a long time. So one came back with, what exactly are you looking for? What really do you want me to say here? Like, look, don't dissect it. Just first thing that comes to mind, the church is what? And it was interesting, some of the responses I got, mostly positive, but one that it sounds negative. But again, if we don't address the negative in this and the truth in this, we're going to continue in this as a church in America. And this person's comment was the church is deluded. The church is deluded. It's just not as strong as it once was. It's been watered down. And again, we need to address these things because does these things that people say, sometimes they're just made up things that they perceive, but there's some truth in these things as well. By the way, the church in America today, to some degree, big church is diluted. And we need to address that. As far as the church being boring, that is one that I kind of find interesting. Because again, we've tried to address that as church culture in America over the last 20, 30, 40 years. And what we've done is to make church less boring, we've diluted the church even more. Now, I'm just going to be real with you for a moment. And I'm just, if it's okay, I just want to share kind of my opinion on this. I always struggle when somebody that's a follower of Christ tells me that reading of God's word and talking about God's word, no matter what passage we're in or what topic we're on, is boring. I have a problem that just doesn't sit well with me. You know, there's Christians that won't even come to church or go to a church service unless the topic that's being discussed interests them. As though somehow cover to cover, the entire counsel of God's word is not intriguing enough for the follower of Christ to say, look, you can teach anything from the Bible. I want to be there because I just love Jesus and his word that much. So the church has tried to amend this problem of being boring. And by doing so, they've watered down, diluted the gospel. Not in every case. But our attempt at the church should not be, what do I need to do to make church less boring? Maybe it should be, what do I need to do in my prayer life and us as a church in our prayer life to encourage people to seek the Lord in a way that anything that has to do with God is not boring, but massively engaging and desirable. Maybe we should stop trying to appeal to the masses and just preach the word and let the spirit do the work. How about some positive ways we might end that statement, the church is? Just a few that came to my mind, a few that some were shared with me. How about the church's home? The church's home. It was so great having Rick and Chris Fox with us uh, last week for Easter. They recently moved up north and uh, found a great local church that they were able to be a part of. 
uh, super excited about it. But I was talking to him in the hallway, and, and we've been talking off and on the last few months that they've been up there and, and finding this church. And the first thing she said when they were talking about this church, how great it was, love this church, great church. Man, it's such a great church. It reminds us a lot of North Goodland. And then she said, but it's not home. And what she meant was, it's not home. It's not North Goodland. It's not where I, I feel at home. Does that mean there's something wrong with that church? Absolutely not. You've experienced this. If you grew up in a certain church and you grew in the Lord in a certain church, you can go to any other church that's a good church, but it'll never be the same church. So for some of you, North Goodland isn't home in the sense that your church, you really grew in the Lord, maybe when you were younger in your teens, 20s, or first saved. That's home. And that church could do nothing wrong, right? Because it's home. I just feel at peace here. That's a great thing to identify the church as. I just feel at home here. How about the church as a pillar of truth? Pillar of truth. Called to be a pillar of truth. The church is family. The church is friendly. The church is loving. I love this one. The church is there for you. When you're on the mountaintop rejoicing or broken in sin, the church is there for you. The church is founded on scripture. The church is not a man-made institution. It is a scriptural foundation that we stand upon. The church is calming. The church is calming. And that's not in comparison to the church being convicting, but there's a calmness that comes over us when we worship with the, with the body of Christ. The church is growing. I love hearing that. Oh, the church is growing. Tonight, we're going to talk about what does a growing church really look like? What does it really look like to be a part of a growing church? So I invite you back tonight at 6 o'clock as we dive into Scripture. There's a passage that just jumped out to me this week in my reading that just blew me away. I've seen it before. I've read it before, but never quite like this. And I can't wait to share with you tonight. What does a growing church really look like? How about the church is a local gathering place? A local place where we gather together as, lastly, the church is the body of believers, the individuals. The church has been described in many ways and called many things, and yet the church remains. Some churches preach the truth of Scripture. Some churches preach man-made religious systems, traditions, extra things added on to the gospel. Some churches pander to the cultural trends in their teaching, not wanting to offend anyone and accept and affirm everyone. Everyone is welcomed in church. Everyone. But welcoming everyone into church does not mean the church needs to affirm and accept everything individuals do. Jesus loves you so much right where you are, just as you are. But he also loves you enough that when you come to Christ, he won't leave you there. But some churches are beginning to move this way. In an effort to reach people, great intention, not a great means. Some churches preach the gospel as the life-giving rescue from sin and hell, available to anyone because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And understand we are created in the image of God with value and worth. And yet our behaviors naturally are sinful. They preach that without Christ, we are destined for hell. This is what I pray our church will continue to be and grow in. A church that preaches the life-giving message of the gospel from sin and hell that's available to anyone because all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. Understanding we are all created in the image of God with value and worth intrinsic because we were created in God's image. Not because of your worth uh, by, by finances, styles, looks, 
success, career, anything else. But yet also identifying that, yes, we're created in the image of God, but we are also naturally bent towards sin and depravity away from God. And yet, what does the gospel bring? Restoration to who we really are in Christ, who we really were called to be in the Lord. Restoring the wisdom and the knowledge of that image of God. And the truth is that without Christ, any and everyone without Christ will perish in a place called hell. That's not the Baptist view. That's not John's view. That's the Bible's view. That's, that's Jesus's teaching. And again, I'm always amazed when people say, well, Jesus would never send anyone to hell. I love that in a sense that the irony of that, because Jesus himself spoke more about hell than almost any other topic in the New Testament. In the Gospels, he spoke about how often and directly and boldly. Why? Because he loves us so much. John chapter 14, that you would come to know Christ, that where he is, there you may be also. Not in hell, but in his heaven through his gospel. Because the church has been labeled in so many ways, it is hard to know immediately what kind of church it may be. There is also no such thing as a perfect church. We say amen until we find ourselves dealing with imperfect people in church and then we're quick to point out their imperfection and how much we are better. We say amen so there's no perfect church, but then when we find that church showing imperfection, we get freaked out and we go, what's going on? You're supposed to be perfect. There's no perfect church. By the way, if you do find a perfect church, don't join it because you're going to mess it up. And that goes for me too. That's why I don't pastor a perfect church because I'm not a perfect pastor. Churches are full of broken sinners that need grace and repentance. So church can be messy at times. It doesn't mean we condone sin. Again, no, we speak against it. But with the message of grace and truth. In thinking through all of this and so much more, I would like to spend the next few weeks looking at some key passages in the New Testament that help us to see what the church is called to be and our calling as we gather. So there's two main objectives here. I, I want to be purposeful in this because I believe God wants us to be purposeful and organized in our thoughts on this. What is the purpose of the next six weeks? Simply put, if I had to summarize it all down, what is the church called to be in the world today? And what are we called to be as the church when we gather together as the body of Christ? What is the church called to be in the world today? And what is our calling as we gather that's the point. That's the whole summary point of this series. To start, one of my all-time favorite passages in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1. Let's turn there. Colossians chapter 1. As you're turning there, if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seats there, there are Bibles there, you can just turn to page 830. So if you're using one of the Bibles provided, page 830, first, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to start in just a moment in verse 15. So Colossians 1, 15 is where we're going to start. If you're using a Bible provided there in the seats, page 830. So again, just a powerful passage. And I don't know about you, but I've read this verse, these verses so many times. And every time I realize how little I've applied them at my, in my life. If you want to take notes, you can follow along on our app. Under media, sermon notes, you'll find today's message You can follow along with an outline if you'd like to. If you'd like a copy of my notes, please just let me know. If you want a whole copy of the whole series of notes, it's fine. I'll send you whatever you'd like. 
Just reach out to me, email, Facebook, whatever, let me know, and I'd love to give you a copy of these notes so that you can continue in your studies. So Colossians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 15. And the word of God says this. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things. It's pretty pretty powerful term. All things were created by him and for him, for Christ, by Christ, for Christ. Verse 17. And he is before all things and by him, all things consist. And here's the key into this, this theme, this, this series of messages. And he is the head of the body, the church. If you highlight in your Bible, if you take notes in your Bible, maybe you'd want to highlight that. If you're using a device, you can highlight. In most of those, you can highlight the text. That is a key we must understand as the body of Christ. He is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We just celebrated the resurrection last Sunday. That in all things, he might have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Verse 20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. I'm going to read another. Uh, this is a paraphrase of the passage. And I just wanted to pull it up on my phone here. So uh, I'm not texting anyone. I'm not checking Facebook. I'm just pulling up a, a verse here. So this is from a paraphrase. And I love this. And by the way, paraphrases, there's nothing wrong with a paraphrase. A Bible, as long as we know it's a paraphrase and not a translation. So think of this like a commentary on the scripture. So paraphrases are fine as long as we understand there's a big difference between a paraphrase and a translation. This is what this paraphrase says. And it kind of lumps it together in like a longer, there's no real verses breaking up here, but I'll just read through it. We look at this son, so Jesus, And see the God who cannot be seen. So how do we see a God who cannot be seen? We see him in the sun. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels. Everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does the body. Like our mind, our head holds everything together. So Christ holds the church together. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade. He is supreme in the end from beginning to end. He's there towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. That's 
your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for your word. I pray as we continue through the message this morning, Lord, that you would just open our hearts and minds to these truths. Father, we thank you for your glorious grace that you, through the cross, are fitting things together for your glory and our blessing. And Father, we pray that you would be glorified in everything that is said and done. Draw the one or maybe many that need to be drawn to repentance unto salvation this morning, that we might see our need of sin to be forgiven and call upon Christ who forgives. So Father, again, it's not about religion. It's about coming to know Christ personally through the gospel. Help us understand these things, Lord, that as we are called to be your church, that we'd go forth and be the church, not just in gathering together, but in our everyday lives. Well, Lord, I pray as we say that, that we would not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It's not one or the other, it's both. Help us to know that balance. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So the first truth we must understand is that the church, and this is a real deep point, so get your pens ready, get your phones ready, whatever you're doing, crayons, whatever you're writing with, okay? If you're sitting next to your wife and she's got some lipstick, whip it out, just get ready to go. The church is for Jesus. Like, I know what you're thinking. Really? That's the profound? Of course it's for Jesus. Do you know how many people in our church culture today have forgotten that very simple point? The church is for Jesus. He is the head of the church. In your notes there for following along, Christ is to hold preeminence. Christ is to hold preeminence. Our central focus is on Christ. Now, this word for preeminence that Paul uses in Colossians chapter 1, it's only used here. This is the only time this specific Greek word is used is in this text in Colossians 1. So Paul basically kind of coined this phrase and using it in this way in this text. So what does Paul mean when he says preeminence? Now, we have a, a mindset of what we think of, but let me give you the literal definition of how it breaks down. Paul is saying that Christ is to be first and to hold first place. To be first and to hold first place. That means he's not only arriving in first place, we hold him in that position. We keep him in that position. The origin or the root word of this specific Greek word, not to go too far into that, carries the idea of first in time, first in rank, First in honor, first in influence, to be chief. So when Paul's writing these words under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says Christ is to have preeminence. And that word, that simple Greek word, carries the idea of first in every possible measure. First in time, first in rank, first in influence, first in honor. He's to hold the preeminent position in our lives and not just our lives, but in the life of the church. What point is Paul driving home by using this specific word? I believe it's that in the church, by the way, that means in our lives, because our lives corporately coming together as the body of Christ are reflecting that. And so if you want to experience, and I love hearing people say, man, the worship was just so powerful this morning. I find for myself and talking to other people that when you come into church and it seems like the worship is just 
There's just more to it. And by the way, it doesn't matter the style of the song or the instruments being used in the song, but the content of the song. And you come in and you go, man, this, that worship was amazing. I find it's usually when we begin preparing our hearts on Monday for Sunday. When we start spending time with the Lord every day and just praying, Lord, I want to be understanding what you have for me. I want to be in your word. I just, I love you so much and I want to know your will for my life. And we're just calling out to him. I'm always amazed that on that Sunday, that next Sunday, when we spend time like that with the Lord, people are like, man, it was amazing today in church. Do you know what's changed? Nothing up here. What's changed is the heart of the one receiving the worship and worshiping with the music. This is how someone can walk into one church service. Same exact music, same exact message, same exact everything. Two believers walk in. One leaves and says, I've never been a part of a service so powerful. One leaves and says, well, I didn't really get much out of it. It has nothing to do. Now, I'm not saying we don't prepare in our hearts and minds as preachers and teachers and musicians. Of course we do. And there's so I love seeing the praise team pray on Sunday nights before when practice is done. They gather together and they just pray. Or they'll do it on Sunday mornings. It's just so powerful. But you know why one person will leave and say, that was amazing. One person will leave and say, eh, I could, I could have heard better. Because the heart. Was there preparation? Did we come expecting God to move? Or did we come just going, okay, I dare you to bless me. Go. It's amazing how our, our understanding of worship changes when we begin preparing our hearts. And so how do we make Christ first in the church? Well, simply put, we make Christ first in our lives individually. So in your notes, you don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to answer out loud. But this question is in your notes for you to consider. Again, just as we're working through this. If you were honest right now, I don't want the church answer. I don't want the Sunday school answer. Unless that's genuinely the desire and the call of your heart. I'm not saying perfectly. But if you were honest right now, you don't need to raise your hand. But think on this. What holds first place in your life right now? What holds first place? Is it your career? Is it your spouse? Is it your children? Is it your convenience? Is it your comfort that holds first place? Is it yourself? Have you put yourself in first place? If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, true joy, true peace only comes when we realize he is to be number one. Do you want a happy and healthy marriage? By the way, marriages are never called to be happy. They're called to be Christ-centered, faithful, healthy marriages. But you want a healthy marriage? Make Christ first individually, and you'll find all of a sudden an attitude of service towards your spouse instead of an attitude of serving me. You want to raise your children who aren't perfect, who are going to do things that you don't like, but you want to raise them and nurture them in the admonition of the Lord, stop trying to conform them to what you want and conform them by God's grace to what he would have for them by just leading an example before them of Christ being first. You're going to do it perfectly? No. You're going to say some things you shouldn't have said? Yeah. You're going to let the flesh out a little bit as we talked about on Wednesday night with Galatians 5 and the outburst of anger? Yeah. So what do you do? You repent. You seek grace and forgiveness. You go to your child. You ask their forgiveness. And you show them grace. Do you know why parents won't go, or kids won't go to their parents all the time when they do something really, really bad? Because they're terrified that their parent doesn't understand how to forgive them. But man, when we demonstrate that and live that out, 
So what's first in your life right now, if you're being honest, and if it's anything other than Jesus Christ, which you might say, well, how do I even know that, preacher? How do I know it's first in my life? Where do you spend your greatest amount of effort, time, money, and interest? That'll tell you what's number first, number one in your life. Where do you spend the greatest amount of your time, your interest, your efforts, and your finances? That's number one. And you're like, well, but I mean, you know, is it wrong to take a vacation and buy something nice for the family? Of course not. But if everything you do centers around your comfort, your convenience, then maybe that's what's in number one. And are we surprised that when that attitude then bleeds out into the church where people come to church expecting it to be all about them and not about Jesus? Quickly, as we're running out of time, not only is he to have preeminence, Christ is the reason we gather. Christ is the reason we gather. When we gather, we gather for Christ. We gather to worship him as the first in our lives. It makes sense, right? I make Christ number one in my life. Then we come together. And what do we do corporately, collectively as the body of Christ? We emphasize that he is first. So we gather at its primary core reason, not for self, but for Jesus. This is for him. If the church is for him, then our gathering is for him. And if we live that way during the week, now we come together to exalt Christ as his church. But the problem is, sometimes we don't live that way during the week. So we come together as the church and we leave going, well, I've heard better. And by the way, I'm always amazed that you guys keep showing up. Can I be real for a second? It's an obvious sign of God's grace. Because I know you're not here for me and my oratory skills. I don't have any. But Jesus is the reason we gather. And if you come because of a preacher or a musician or a band, you will stay for a short time but leave frustrated and discouraged. But when we come for Jesus, man, we leave full. We leave satisfied. He is the reason we gather. If we're being honest... It does not make sense to get up on a Sunday morning on a beautiful day like today, wrestle with your children to find matching socks and clothing and outfits. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but some of you, your child found a shoe this morning. Ah, singular, one shoe. Where's the other shoe? I don't know. Well, they kind of come as a pair. If you took one off here... Where's the other one? It should be right here. Why is it in a different part of the house? When our kids are growing up, I swear there would be like one shoe by the door, one shoe in the bathtub. What, what was going on when you took your shoes off? Why do we gather all of this stuff together, get matching outfits, get everyone dressed, drive to a church building, sometimes 30, 45 minutes away, sit through a sermon where you might be convicted to change an area of your life that you don't want to change. See that person that you don't really like and you have to be nice to them because you're in church. Give your hard-earned money to some missionary or some ministry that really doesn't directly impact your life. This is my hard-earned money. I got to give this away to some church? None of that makes any sense, humanly speaking, 
unless it's all for Jesus. Because when it's all for him, it makes sense. As I mentioned a moment ago, Paul says Christ is the head of the church. And here that word head means source, origin, leader, or ruler. He leads and he is the head of the church directing its steps. But can we be reminded the reason we gather is because the only reason there is a church is because Jesus created and instituted the church. That he is the origin and the source of the body of Christ. It's his body. Warren Worsby says this. And part of this is in your notes. I believe the first line is in your notes. The church had its origin in him. And today it has its operation in him. As the head of the church, Jesus supplies it with life through the spirit. He gives gifts to men and then places these gifted people in the church, his church, that they might serve him where they are needed. Through his word, Jesus Christ nourishes and cleanses the church. You see, worship, as we talk about gathering and worshiping him, worship is not primarily about how it makes us feel or the experience we have in worship. Worship is about him. Why do we sing songs? If you're in my case, poorly. Why do, why do we do that? Why do we put the people next to us through that kind of torture? That's one of the reasons I sit by myself is I don't want to put anyone else through that. Why do we do that? Why do we sing these songs? Because it makes us feel good? Because we feel something? No. As a follower of Christ, the only reason you feel anything during worship is because you're directing it to Jesus. And in response, you are fulfilling the purpose of what you're called to be as the church. And as a result, we feel joy and peace and unity in the body of Christ. You see, worship is not primarily about how it makes you feel or the experience or the atmosphere that you experience. It's about lifting him up, lifting up his grace, lifting up his love, his mercy, his justice, his power, and his holiness. You see, the biblical truth is our worship is so much more than the songs we sing or the performance we see. It is about engaging God through his spirit and in the truth of his word. That's what worship is all about. That in full surrender, we would praise him, give all praise to him. Because as Paul says, this is all for the glory of God in the church. You see, the church is for Jesus. Now, I really wanted to spend the majority of our time on that. And I'm going to take about the next five minutes. So bear with me. We're almost done. Five minutes. And I want to tell you what the church is not about and is not for. And we'll move through this quickly. I'm going to give you some verses. You can jot them down, but they should also be in the notes on the app. So if the church is for Jesus, then simple reasoning would suggest then it does not exist for us. And we already covered this a moment ago. But the church is for Jesus. It does not exist for us. We are blessed by the church through prayer, service, encouragement, and support, and even the opportunity to come to Christ as Savior. However, that is not the drive of the church, but the fruit of being the church. Again, were you blessed by these children coming up and singing and worshiping Jesus before us? Man, what a blessing. 
Do you know why that's a blessing to you? Because it's about Jesus. It's for Jesus. Are we blessed by it? Absolutely. But our primary focus is not self, but Christ. The drive and focus of the church is and always will be first vertical. Ephesians 3. I'm going to turn back there. It's just two books over. Ephesians 3. I'm just going to read quickly. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly with all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Okay, boom. It's in us. It's me. It's about me. Great. I can ask anything and he'll do what I want. That's a comma at the end of verse 20, not a period. So the thought continues. What does the thought continue with in verse 21? Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Why is it that Jesus works in us? Why is it that we feel the blessings of his provision, his mercy, his grace, so that we might glorify him and lift up him? The horizontal blessings result from a vertical emphasis. Paul continues this point in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, where he talks about the positions given to the church, first apostles, then prophets, then evangelists and pastors, teachers. The church is called to equip and mature the saints, but that is not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to glorify Christ. And as a response to glorifying Christ, the church is matured. We join as the church so the world will see Christ in a clear light so they might call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Romans 1.16 That I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. You see, the church is for Jesus. It does not exist for us or our entertainment. The church is for Jesus. It does not exist for us or for our entertainment. Here's the question we have to ask when we think about church. Is church primarily Christ-centered or consumer-centered? We live in a church culture today, in America today, that has confused this greatly. They've moved from Christ-centered to consumer-centered. What do I mean by that? Many churches have fallen for the trap of treating their congregations as customers they need to keep happy and returning rather than the sheep that need to be fed and cared for in Christ. John 21, what was Jesus' command to, and encouragement to Peter? Feed my sheep. They didn't say make them come back through entertainment. Now you might leave going, wow, you guys put on a good show, a good performance. You see a church do a play or something like that. The point of the church is not performance. This is not a concert. I'm all for Christian concerts, by the way. I've been to quite a few. Nothing wrong with that. Christian entertainment. We had the orchestra concert, Lapeer Symphony Orchestra, here in December. And they put on a concert for us. That's a performance. And it was awesome. I hope that we can talk to Keith and let them come back this December. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not church. When it's church, it's Jesus-centered. To emphasize this point quickly, I'm just going to give you something I, I came across in my studies for this message. And this is literally titled, 15 Growth Strategies Any Congregation Can Use. So there are ministries out there that help people learn how to grow a church. 
And they'll always say things like, break the 200 barrier, break the 500 barrier. I just heard on the radio this morning, there's a ministry that you can use. It's called like church attendance online um, projections. You can project how big your church is going to get. If you want to make a big church, you can use this software and it'll work. There's only one problem here, and we'll talk about it in a minute here. We don't grow the church, but we'll get to that in a moment. Here's 15 growth strategies that may or that any congregation can use. None of these are wrong in and of themselves, but what do you think the drive is in this list? You ready? Just listen to these. Here's the 15 things. Be welcoming. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. Is that primarily our focus as a church is just to be welcoming, or is it for Jesus? Jesus. Start a book club. Start a soup kitchen. So now we're not starting a soup kitchen to feed the needy and the poor. We're doing it to grow a church and to make a crowd come. Keep it clean because any business needs to be kept clean. Take care of the congregation. Oh, that's fine. No, what they really mean is make sure everyone's happy with the product. Be social media savvy. Use the right hashtags. Use digital signage. Invite guests. Again, nothing wrong with that. But when you read their explanation of that, again, it's so surface. Send out an email newsletter. Host a kid's movie night. Host interesting speakers. Engage your community. Update your website. Set goals. How big do you want to be? It actually tells you, do you want to increase your membership by 25%, by 50%? Use these proven market strategies and you can grow a church. One more off of another very popular. This individual's name is Kerry Neuf or Neuf. This is from a church growth ministry. He's very big, very popular. One of the things he says is to grow a church, cut the weird. Cut the weird. Well, okay, there are some weird people in some churches. I'm not going to lie. We've got a couple, okay? So I was like, we've got to ask Vic to leave the church. I don't want to do that. I'm just kidding. Vic knows I'm kidding. We're, we're fine. Okay. You're like, he just said that from the pulpit. Vic and I have been friends for a long time. He, he, we're good. But here's what he means. He says, Christians can be socially weird. Oh, sit down. Stop it. Hey, offering already passed. He already gave his offering. So we're good. You can leave if you want. Here's what, here's what he says about how to grow a church. When he talks about cutting the weird, Christians can be socially weird. Too often we use unnecessarily weird language like this. You ready for his example of unnecessarily weird language? This is good coffee, brother. (laughs) Apparently the brother thing throws people. Here's one. You ready for this? This is weird language that we should cut out as Christians. Amen and hallelujah. Pretty sure those words are in the book. I'm pretty sure what we say amen to acknowledge that what was just said needs to go forth. And we say hallelujah because our Savior deserves all the praise and all the glory. He is worthy of every hallelujah. He says this, why not just talk at church the way you talk at the office or at a football game or even on a Saturday by the pool? Actually, if you talk like that, using weird language normally, you probably don't get invited out too often. Here's what's actually at stake. If someone has to be taught code to join your church, you likely won't have many people joining your church. Our challenge is to reduce the human barriers that keep people from Jesus, not erect new ones. And we do that not by preaching the gospel, not by emphasizing repentance unto salvation, not by talking about sin, death, hell, none of that. No, no, no. Just stop saying amen and hallelujah and you'll grow your church if you make it sound just like the side of the pool or the football game. And this teaching 
is prevalent in churches. I had somebody tell me they were part of another church in our community. They were doing this video thing, talking about a testimony of how God's been growing them. And they used the word fellowship. They said, I just love the fellowship. They stopped the recording and said, you can't use that word because non-church people don't understand that word. You need to use a different word other than fellowship because we don't want to offend anyone or turn anyone away. Nonsense. Silliness. I've heard more and more churches doing more and more things to, quote, create an atmosphere or to create an experience that leaves people wanting more. To be clear, these things on the list, being welcoming, inviting guests, they're fine and important, but are not the drive of the church. So many pastors and church leaders believe they have to help the Holy Spirit accomplish the work of redemption and conversion. Obviously, we are called to preach and serve, to share our faith in an effective way, which requires us being involved in the work of the Spirit. However, Paul says, some plant, some water, but God gives the increase. I fear we live in a church culture that relies on market strategies, research surveys, and a business model to produce converts or church attenders. Their intentions are good. I know some of these pastors. Their intentions are good. But their desire is to see people come to, because their desire is to see people come to Christ. But we must be careful because it is God who adds to the church daily such as should be saved. Acts 2, verse 47. We desire that our heart as a church, our motivation in all that we do, ministries and events, would be putting Christ first in all things. And as a byproduct, we, as the church, are blessed and our joy is full. Quickly. Some of you heard about even some things that even recently happened at a church over Easter weekend. Church is called Transformation Church. The pastor's opinion on Easter Sunday was get as close to sinning without actually sinning in everything we do so we could draw as many in for Christ. Actual sinful things going on on stage. Complete nonsense. I heard one person say it looked like the Grammys. How cool. Do you know what our generation needs right now? And we're going to pray just a moment. And you guys, I could keep going for another hour. I, I promise you. I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited for what God is doing in his church, his church. You know what people need in our world today? They don't need Grammys at church. Not opposed to using instruments and, and songs, obviously. But they don't need a performance. They need Christ-centered biblical teaching to lead them from sin to salvation that only comes by the working of the Spirit. And you know what's amazing me? The generation that's coming up, not the millennials, but what do they call them? Gen Z, I think is the new thing. So this younger generation coming up, do you know what they're finding? They don't want the show. They don't want the flash. They don't want the lights and the smoke and all the other stuff that really isn't even needed. They want something of substance. They don't want to show. They want to know the love of God. Do you know Jonathan Edwards, known as the greatest revivalist preacher Honestly, in the history of the church, but in the last 200 years, 150 years, do you know he would just read his text from the word of God, no inclinations of voice, no nothing, and people would just rush the altar to receive Christ because the spirit of God was moving and people responded, not because there was a great band and a dynamic speaker and some other thing, but because the word of God was declared and God's spirit moved and God was glorified. That's what our church is called to be. A place of worship, yes, but where Jesus does the work, not us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. I thank you for the patience of 
those that are here today, Lord, as we've gone a little over, I just, I appreciate their grace. Lord, I just pray that you would work this all out in your, in your way as you give us wisdom in this, Lord. I don't mean this to knock any individual church, pastor, leader, but Lord, I do believe that we are called to be discerning of the things we see happening in the church. That we can, we can call out behaviors or, or, or motivations as either biblical or unbiblical. And Lord, I'm not using this to attack a person, but to, to come after a way of thinking. And so Lord, I pray that we as a church, and by that I mean every individual in this room, every person watching online, we will begin today to put you first. And as a byproduct of that, it'll spill out into our church. It'll spill out into our worship. It'll spill out into our singing and our evangelism and our prayers. Lord, that you would be first. So Lord, here's what we're going to do this morning. We just want to make you number one and put you first in our lives. Lord, would you stir in us a passion for you because this community needs the word of God preached clearly so that you would take that word by the moving of your spirit and draw men and women to repentance. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these individuals. Thank you for a church that clearly and consistently puts you first in so many things. But Lord, I know we're not there yet. And I know the best is yet to come. And so would you do a work that only you can do. Father, we give you all the praise and glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as a song of invitation? I want to ask you two things. And you respond how the Lord leads. Would you come this morning and say, Lord, I know you're not number one in my life. I know it. I'll put something else there. Maybe you'd come and repent of that and make him number one right now. Don't worry about anyone else. You respond. And number two, maybe you'd come and say, Lord, I'm going to pray that our church will continue to be a church that you've called us to be for your glory and for our blessing. Would you respond this morning? Would you come and pray and seek the Lord as we worship?